0: Turn with me to the book of Numbers chapter 13. Today I want to explore a passage of scripture that illustrates this fight of faith. Numbers 13. So I want to give just a little bit of background to the book of Numbers and in some ways I've, I appreciate that you guys have been going through the book of Genesis so some of this will be really fresh to you. The book of Numbers actually really begins there with the promise that God made to Abraham about the land of Canaan. Genesis 12 records, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land. Skipping ahead says, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. This promise is repeated to Isaac in Genesis 26 and to Jacob in Genesis 35. Then through Moses... To all the Israelites, nearly 400 years later, after the promise is initially made, God reiterates the promise and says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So that's... The beginning, really, of Numbers, the context there. When we get to Exodus, it records the formation of the people of Israel into a theocratic nation in which the promise of the the land is repeated no less than seven times. So you can imagine, you're the Israelites. This has got to be on the front of your mind. It has been repeated over and over again. It is the reason why you've been formed together as a nation. When Numbers begins, the people of Israel have only been Two years since the exodus from Egypt, they've been miraculously preserved in the desert of Sinai. And that first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers is really about their preparation to take the land. In fact, the first two chapters are all about numbering. We get the book, we get the name numbers, right? It's all about numbering, taking a census of all the people of Israel that were able to fight in war over and over again, each tribe who are able to fight in war. But it's when we get to chapter 11 that things begin to go downhill. The people complain about the manna that God had provided them. They ask for meat. So God sends the quail over to them more than they can number, and his anger burns against them, and they are struck with a plague, and many die. Then, after that, Moses' brother and sister start to oppose his leadership. And as a result, his sister Miriam is struck with leprosy for seven days. And then we get to chapter 13, which is our passage this morning. They are in the wilderness of Paran, just south of Canaan, and the Lord commands Moses to send spies out to investigate the land. So, that takes us to our verse, uh, we're in chapter 13. I'm going to begin actually at... Um, verse 17. So read along with me. I will be reading from the ESV, so I hope that doesn't trip any of you up this morning. Moses sent them out to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebohamath. Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahimon, Shishai, and Talimai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them, and they also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place is called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. For then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than we are so they brought to the people of israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and the people that we saw in it are of great height and there we saw the nephilim the sons of Anak, who come from the nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them I believe that in Numbers 13, we have a graphic illustration of the fight of faith. This is a fight that we're all engaged in. So today, I want you and I, and I, all of us, to see from this passage five choices that we must make to fight the fight of faith that God has enabled us to win. So we have five choices that we must make to fight the fight of faith that God has enabled us to win. We start with the first here. The first is that we must fight, uh, choose to face the fight. We must choose to face the fight. So what I mean by this is that we have to recognize and accept the idea that we are engaged day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour in a battle. Life is not an amusement park, but it's a battlefield. So let us consider a few things from the context of this passage, which I think will bring that out. We talked about this just a little bit ago. The book of Numbers really is a call to war. It begins with a census of the people of Israel. Moses says, Take a census, in chapter 1 and verse 2, of all the people in Israel who are able to go to war. And over again, it's repeated. Later, when we get to chapter 11... Moses uh, is given this command. It says, uh, when, now notice it's when, not if, but when you go to war in the the land against your adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God. In their journey, the spies traveled, and if you can see some up here in the map, they traveled all the way from Kadesh Barnea, which is off. At the bottom of the map, at the edge of the wilderness, uh, up to Rehob, which may be about as far as Mount Hermon. So if you have any familiarity with the land of Israel, you know that there are two major seas. You have the Sea of Galilee, and then the Dead Sea, and then the River Jordan that connects them. Kind of looks like a Q-tip. And at the top there, what feeds that is Mount Hermon. So they may have gone nearly as far as that uh, length. It was likely a 500-mile trip back and forth. And at some points, they were traveling through the hill country. You can kind of see the yellow area there. It's showing the topography. That's a higher elevation there. It's, it's uh, uh, lower elevation, obviously, as you get to the coastlands. What they would have had is a vantage point from that hill country into the land to see all the people that were there. So they would have known very well what the challenge was that they were facing. And it says in verse 25, at the end of 40 days, this isn't back in chapter 13, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They needed at this point to, fight, to face the fight. They needed to take courage in God. And that's why Moses told them in verse 20 of chapter 13 to be of good courage. He knew that they needed to. But the problem was They didn't want to fight the faith or face the fight. Instead, they avoided it. They delivered a bad report to the people. And as we can see, if you were to flip over to chapter 14 and verse 4, it resulted in something among the people. Uh, First of all, they began to grumble. And then they, in chapter chapter 14, verse 4, it says that they asked to choose a leader to go back to Egypt. So evidently to them, that path into the land seemed more difficult than the path back to Egypt. Egypt seemed easier to them. Now, they had very much of a short-term memory, obviously, because they, in the first place, were crying out to God for deliverance from Egypt. But uh, they didn't want to face the fight. Now, oftentimes, I think that we're tempted in the same way. We're tempted to think that when the path gets difficult that that couldn't be god's path for us we assume that the path that god has for us must be the easy one where all the pieces come together and it looks nice and neat in fact when we experience difficulty we're very quick to question if you are like me i'm very quick to question is this what god wants me to do is this the path that he has for me in fact When we start walking on that path and it gets difficult, we question even more. So uh, back in the uh, 19th century, there's a picture of a missionary couple, Adoniram and Ann Judson. I know if you're familiar with them. They were uh, American missionaries, Baptist missionaries that went to Burma. They felt, both felt the call there, and, and as uh, Adoniram was on his way from the United States to visit the London Missionary Society, the ship he was on got taken captive by the, by the French, and in fact, he and the crew got put in prison in France. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in their situation, or Adoniram's situation, I would have thought, maybe God doesn't want me to go this direction, and I would have questioned it, and he had that opportunity. But he concluded that God wanted him to go to Burma, and he continued to go. He and his wife landed there in 1813, and he labored there for 19 years. And you know what the fruit was of 19 years? Barely one convert. And do you know the suffering that this man faced during that time? His wife of 13 years died from malnutrition and disease he up unto that point had been imprisoned and tortured and then after his wife died they lost their infant daughter it was so excruciating pain painful to him that he almost lost his sanity and it wasn't until that 19 year period that the word about jesus christ began to flood through the land and there was fruit but it wasn't the end of his suffering. God revived him, but he still suffered the loss of another wife and six more children. Can you imagine that? And I'll just ask some rhetorical questions. Was he on God's path? Should he have turned back? Now, the church is, uh, there, there are churches in Burma who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, many Baptist churches because of what this man did. But I want to point out the reality that life is war, and it requires some measure of suffering. Paul told Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.3, to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, to be sure, we're not all called to suffer as greatly as Adoniram Judson did. Uh, God knows perfectly what is necessary for each of us. And he, as a loving father, either brings or withholds suffering for our good. And it's a mystery at times as to why, but we trust him for that. But what I want to point out is that we must not run from difficulty or conclude that God's path doesn't include difficulty. We need to face the fight of faith we are engaged in. Now, I don't want to camp too long on this, but I want to point out something I think is very important, that this isn't implied just in the big things of life. It's not all about the Adoniram Judson decisions about whether to stay in Burma or not. It's also in the little and unseen moments of life that hit us all day by day. God called the spies to give a report of the land, right? That was clear, God's command to them. They knew it was God's will for them. They knew that God promised to give them the the land, but they didn't embrace it. My question for us this morning is, what is called you and I to do today, tomorrow morning, or even two hours from now? Now, think with me in this scenario. Imagine you're on the phone with a computer service technician from another country. There's a lot of background noise. His accent is heavy. You've waited on hold for 45 minutes. Your computer is two months old. You're thinking, there is no way this computer should have a problem right now. On top of that, and if any of you ever called a computer service technician, you will probably nod your heads here. He's asking you to do all sorts of things that seem very obvious, like, did you plug it into the wall? (laughs) Did you try restarting it? Will you remember at that point in time, as you are feeling like you're losing your patience, that you are in a battle to obey Titus chapter 3 and verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people? I know that I forget in that moment, and I have many times failed. Now, married men, what about Ephesians chapter 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Will you remember this passage, not when it's date night, <laughs> That's that you prepared for, right? But when it's the kind of time of the month where your wife is getting short with you for what seems like no apparent reason, at least in your mind. <laughs> Will you remember that you are to love all the time, just as Christ loved the church? Honor your father and mother, children and teenagers, if you are in here right now. Will you submit to your in your heart, really, to your parents' rules, embracing them as God's best for you, even when you do not understand them? When these things happen, will you recognize the battle and choose to face the fight? Not only must we choose to face the fight, but we must choose to inspire our investigators. Um, What I mean is that we have an audience, right? Everybody is investigating our lives. Our words and our actions matter. Back to our text in chapter 13, in verses 26 and 27, we read, And they came, that is the spies, to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told him. Now, uh, follow with me really quickly. Notice that they are first talking to Moses and Aaron, and then to all the congregation, and then it says even to them and then to him, that is Moses in particular. The Hebrew word for "told" has its root meaning in to uh, to count or to write or, uh, or to number something, and it's uh, you might be familiar with its usage in a place like Psalm seventy-eight four, where it says, "We will tell or safar to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord." This word is conveying like an official record, something to be passed on, something that is a report and like an official report of sort to others and what it becomes clear as we look at these pieces of evidence is that the spies yes they're talking to moses and aaron the leadership of god's people but they are talking with the intent that the people themselves hear so how did this affect the people of israel that's their first audience oh we'll have them both on there here so the people of israel And the first installment of the report caused an audible commotion. So much so that Caleb, in verse 30, says they quieted the people before Moses. And their second installment of the report says that there was a loud cry, weeping all night, grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And in chapter 14, verses 2 through 4, we read the words of the congregation. It said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? And they go on and on, wanting to go back to Egypt. The peoples, people of Israel, their faith in the Lord was fragile. They were one of the audiences of the spies, and the report given by the spies fractured, destroyed the fragile faith of the people. God's leaders, Moses and Aaron, it had an effect on them too. Back in chapter thirteen, verses—or excuse me—in chapter fourteen, uh, if you were to read thir- verses thirteen through thirty-five, we see Moses falling on his face before God, pleading for the people. This is a great burden to Moses. In fact, back in chapter eleven, verse fourteen, Moses, in the distress of his soul, said to God, "I am not." able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Because unbelief is a heavy burden for God's people. It destroyed the faith of the congregation. It was a burden to God's leaders. And then there's one more audience, one more investigator, set of investigators there. That's God's enemies. Moses, as he's reporting or pleading before God, says this, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land. Their bad report not only r- affects the people of God and the leaders, but their enemies. And it could have very well brought disdain on God's name. These unbelieving, this unbelieving report uh, had an audience that it affected. Uh, people were brought people to unbelief it burdened them and it brought could have brought disdain upon god but caleb and joshua on the other hand through their faith we could see the act or the uh, result of their faith and uh, and how that impacted their investigators their audience moses was protected from the people they momentarily quieted them and through their continued encouragement, that is Caleb and Joshua, to this, the people, even though they are about to be stoned, it eventually stirred the appearance of the glory of God to intercede on behalf of all of them. So we could see the positive effect there. So I want you and I to stop for a moment and consider who is our audience? Who is your audience? Who is watching you and how you live? Now, I think if we sit down and think through this just for just a little while, one of the things we'll realize is that it is everyone. There is not one person who is not watching your life. Sound exciting? Our lives are being watched. Our lives, especially as believers in Christ, are being investigated. What that means in a practical sense is that you cannot turn your faith on and off. Your faith in Christ is not like a light switch that you turn on in certain occasions and turn off at other times to live in your own private world. But every day, every moment, there is a fight of faith and it is observed in its outworking by everyone who sees you. Uh, this uh, brought to mind something that uh, was an encouraging thing for my wife and I is um, we were given uh, for our honeymoon uh, a condo to uh, stay at in Mammoth our honeymoon or our wedding was in January so we had a winter place to go it was great we were kind of short on funds so it was a wonderful blessing to us Uh, my sister-in-law's parents let us uh, stay there free of charge so it was a great blessing to us and Uh, before we were going to leave, I was very thankful for my wife that she, maybe not as much at the time, but I certainly was afterwards, as she considered, well, you know, we should really clean up the place and make it look nice before we leave. So it wasn't a huge effort, but we cleaned up. And several years passed, never gave much thought to that at all. And then one time at a uh, family member's birthday party, we saw my sister-in-law's parents. In fact, her father, Barry, came up to us and began to just show a great level of thanks and appreciation, thinking back about, about how we left the condition of that condo. And in fact, had been saying, anytime you want to come and use it, please go ahead, just let us know. And we didn't think much of it at the time, but that was significant to him. He had observed that. He was one of our investigators. And at that, in this particular instance, God in his grace enabled us to, to act in a faithful way. And I want to point that out because it was something simple and mundane, but it meant a lot to him. Now, he's not a believer, and he didn't turn and place his faith in Christ, but we didn't cause the name of the Lord Jesus to be brought in disdain. And so we were very thankful for that. So every day we have an opportunity to uh, be investigated and we must uh, must inspire our investigators by how we live. Next, we must choose to gaze at the good. We must choose to gaze at the good. And that brings us really to the meat of the passage that we're at right now. And I want to just quickly point out that there were seven things that the spies were supposed to be looking at they were supposed to evaluate the strength of the people the number of the people the quality of the land the strength of the cities that were in there the wealth of the land and the existence of trees and whether there was fruit evidence of the fruit so there were seven things that they were supposed to spy out and report back on and they as you and i are are called to gaze at the good and we'll see What I mean by that is that they needed to see what the good of the land was and not focus on the bad. So their report goes like this. Verse 27. How did they respond? It says that they, and they told him, Moses, and now the congregation as well, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, And he just goes on and on, naming all of the different peoples that are there and all of the obstacles. Notice the emphasis given by the spies in their answer. Seven Hebrew words for the good of the land. 24 for the bad part, the challenges that they're facing. Not only that, but if you have it in ASB, it says, nevertheless, if you read that in... um, In verse 28, ESV says, however, I like nevertheless is better. It's a strong contrast in Hebrew. Uh, It's literally uh, not except that. In other words, it's just a big contrast. They're wanting to gloss over what they just said so that everybody can focus on what they're going to say right now. And that is, there is a huge problem. There are people that we can't beat there. They gave a disproportionate emphasis in their report. But at this point, it's just a set of facts. No commentary. They're just putting more emphasis on one than the other. It's Caleb's response of faith in verse 30 that really breaks the dam of their pretend neutrality and sends the flood of unbelief to sweep over the people. We read in verse 32, the spies' real thoughts about it. It says, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. So they're exaggerating about the strength of the people. And then they say, all the people that we saw in it are great... Or excuse me, they're, they're lying about the, the, the quality of the land, right? Then they say, they exaggerate about the strength of the people, saying all the people we saw in it are of great height. And he goes on and on to talk about how bad it is. And their report Ends this way. We seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. In other words, we're going to get eaten up by them. In the fight of faith, we are tempted to look at the bad rather than the good. We are tempted to emphasize the obstacles rather than the rewards. Notice... The contrast in Joshua and Caleb's report, when you get to chapter 14, if you flip over there and look at verses 7, 8, and 9, they say, It is an exceedingly good land, a land that flows with milk and honey. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. About the exact opposite report as the ten spies. Caleb and Joshua emphasized the good. They were gazing at the good. We, too need to gaze at the good. This is not a name it and claim it theology, unless you're getting scared here, or a self-help, positive thinking, create your own reality, Joel Olstein, I am heresy. It is not that. It's a trusting in the promise of God in Romans 8, where it says, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. It's the human side of the peace that passes all understanding that's, that's put out in Philippians 4, 8, where afterwards we're told that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, to think on these things. Or as Peter puts it, to set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what we're talking about, to gaze at the good, to look at the promises of God and to hold to them. And that takes us to our next point. We must choose to hold to the Holy One. Back to the text. We've seen that Caleb was focused on the good of the land, but how did he get to that laser focus on the good of the land? He says, let us go up... At once in chapter 13, verse 30, and occupy it, for we are well able able to overcome it. And this is where Hebrew, the Hebrew text, really takes the black and white words and turns them into the reading into a full color, surround sound, 3D movie experience. Because what Lake Caleb is literally saying is going up, we shall go up and possess it, for being able, we have been enabled to do it. All right, that's a mouthful. But I want you to focus on this there's a repetition of verbs going and go and being able and been made able. Now, it's not in the the English text that you're reading. It's in the Hebrew. And you may be familiar with this kind of construction because in Genesis 3.17, when God says, you shall certainly die, he is saying dying, you shall die. It's the same construction. It's supposed to emphasize the reality of the certainty of what would take place. On top of that, when Caleb says, we have been enabled, or we are well able to do it, the Hebrew tense captures this passive idea of being enabled to do it. Who's enabling them? God. Amen. God is enabling them. The word God isn't in there, but it's all over this passage. Caleb is holding to the Holy One. He is... I, w- I would translate it this way. Not, I'm not a good Hebrew person, so it wouldn't take me as a Bible translator. But in this passage, as I've studied a lot, I think we would better be saying, we shall certainly go up and possess it, for God has enabled us to do it. He's looking to the Holy One. He's holding to the Holy One. Now, the ten spies in unbelief, they directly contradict it, saying, we have not been enabled. Same Hebrew construction. We have not been enabled to do it. Why do they see it this way? They had the same promises of the land. They were in the same position that Joshua and Caleb were in. I think it's because they were looking at themselves, looking at the horizontal and not the vertical, not looking at what God was going to do for them. Their focus was on themselves. Caleb and Joshua were holding to the Holy One, to his promise and his power. The ten spies were looking at themselves and said they couldn't, they couldn't do it. And that probably was a right estimation in themselves. So how about you and me? Perhaps you have been wrestling through an issue in your life and come to a conclusion about what you should do through careful study of the scriptures, through understanding your life situation, you have come to a conclusion. Perhaps you have realized that one of your children who is being homeschooled, or uh, let me put it this way, one of your children who's in public school, start that way, (laughs) maybe he, your son, is just really having trouble, and you know him, and you know you've come to a conclusion in the scriptures that you need to train him in the ways of the Lord, and you're not able to currently for his needs, and you know that you need to pull him out it 's not a command in the Bible, but it 's your own conviction, but you 're fearful because you don 't know how you 're going to be able to do it you 've never taught before you don 't know how you 're going to accomplish this. Will you act in faith and trust God, or the other way around, perhaps you're, you have a daughter who 's been homeschooled her whole life, but you see that she has a vibrant faith in the lord she 's part of a wonderful faith community here, and she 's ready for it, and you know you have a conviction that you 're Your family needs to be light and salt in the world, and this would be a good thing for her. But you're afraid of taking that step, of sending her out there into the world to be light and salt. Or maybe you have a neighbor who is of an alternative lifestyle. Maybe you have lesbians that are your neighbors, and it's made a lot of awkward situations for you because you know that in the love of Christ, you should reach out to them, to this couple, You should love them. You should share with them the gospel, but you're afraid that your reaching out to them might sound to them like approval of their lifestyle, or other people might misinterpret it. Maybe other people in the church might think that you are not holding to, in this time of controversy, to the faithfulness of the scriptures. So will you have the faith to trust God for that? Last point, we need to toil and trust. Trust. The fight of faith plays itself out ultimately in actions. So I want you all to just think really carefully. The spies, they both acted in some way, either by their reports or by interceding before God or uh, in front of Moses for the people. In some way, they ultimately acted. Now, the fight of faith... Is not complete until we toil and trust, because without our actions, we aren't really saying anything ultimate, definite. Even inaction is a sort of action. In this passage, I want us to think about something. Our action must be combined with and accomplished by faith. We must toil and trust. We may know where we are now and where we are going, but we may not know the way from point A to point B. We may not even know where we are going, but just that we need to go somewhere. And this is where I want you to consider Abram. Here was God's plan for Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And that was it. How about that for a plan? Would you like that? So what do you do with that? Well... What can you do? Pack up your bags? Get the caravan going? Now imagine, here you are, Abram standing there with all the packed goods there. And your wife, Sarai, and your nephew, Lot, come up said, Alright, we're all packed. Now what? Where are we going? Hebrews 11 says specifically that he went out not knowing where he was going. So what do you do? When you don't know what to do sometimes you just got to act and take the next step in that path of faith you don't have the plan but you know that there's a step you can take and you need to do it i don't know about you but that poses a big problem for me because i like the plan and i like certainty but in the walk of faith if we are to toil and trust then our only certainty is the faithfulness of god and our only true plan is one step at a time so thinking through this fight of faith, I, I have to confess to you that this message was, was really for me. We are in a fight of faith right now to get to, um, uh, to, get to Canada and to trust God in the whole process of leaving family and, and taking a, getting a visa there. And God has been so kind to gently remind us of that, that life is a fight of faith, but that we can fully trust him, even though we don't know exactly how it's all going to play out. Even when the way forward is unclear, we can move forward one step at a time, trusting that God will open, close, or even redirect our way. The plan of action to get there is not as important as the fight of faith along the way. And perhaps I trust that there are some of you this morning who are in that same position in some other circumstance of your life. Would you join with me today, today to commit to choosing to fight the fight of faith by facing the fight, inspiring our investigators, and gazing at the good, holding to the Holy One, and trust, toiling in trust. And if you're interested in partnering with us, we would love to have an opportunity just to talk with you after service as uh, you might help us. Uh, I love Lord of the Rings, so to help us to leave the shire. Uh, uh, let me pray really quick. Father in heaven, thank you so much. For this wonderful opportunity to share about the fight of faith this morning. And we pray that you would uh, give us grace for the rest of this week. uh, For the glory of your wonderful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.